As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. If you or someone you know is facing divorce, you're not gonna wanna miss the podcast today. My guest is Rayford Palmer. He is a shareholder in the law firm of STG Divorce Law that's based in Chicago. He's a well-known expert in matrimonial law and is also a member of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. He's frequently recognized by his peers as being one of the top lawyers in Illinois. And he's also author of a book, I Just Want This Done, How Smart Successful People Get Divorced Without Losing Their Kids, Money, and Minds. Rafe, it's so nice to have you here today. It's my pleasure, thank you. It's, uh, I'm really glad to be on your show. One of the things that really struck me about your book is how honest it is about some of the common pitfalls in the divorce process. I'd like to start off by asking you, kind of what was your inspiration or motivation for writing this book? The, the motivation for writing the book really was 20 years of working with divorce clients and sort of going over the same concepts that I'd learned along the way that weren't published in a book or online, clients asking similar questions, going through similar situations and not having any good guidance other than what us, we are in our law firm were telling clients, things that I thought were to some extent common sense or things that I'd learned in the business that helped clients understand what was going on and help them frame their understanding of a case. So. I found myself telling clients the same stuff over and over again that they found very valuable. And I used to say in the conversations with clients, I wish I had a book I could point you to and you could just read about this and then we could talk about it tomorrow. So eventually I looked for that book and I couldn't find it. So ultimately decided I'm gonna write the book, put my experiences in this book and hopefully it'll help people more than just you know beyond my clients. Well, I think you've done a great job. And as a divorce lawyer myself, I will tell you that a lot of the things you're discussing in the book are things that I too wish I had a book and now I do to share with my clients. You know, you really bring a level of awareness to the divorce process that I think a lot lot of lawyers themselves are not even aware of. And I I just kind of want to start off with the question of why do you think the family law system inherently is not really wired well for families? Unfortunately, our court system is, of course, a a binary system. We come from the English common law system, which is really good at win-lose, on-off, guilty, not guilty. And when we deal, which is really a black and white system, and when we deal with family law issues, parenting, finances, and things of that nature, we're dealing with shades of gray, and the system isn't really wired to deal with shades of gray. And coupled with that, the volume that courts have to deal with, family courts, so, you know, in, in Cook County, Chicago, judges are dealing with a thousand plus cases apiece. There's no time to do a detailed, deep dive into people's situations and circumstances. So you get cookie cutter results that take a lot of time and money to achieve. So the system is just not well structured to deal with family law issues. 
You know, I always um, I always tell people you're you're dealing with like civil law. It is a civil court. There's rules of evidence and and such right. that people are you know going to be limited by. Right. Um, and it's a system. Maybe it can work well in a contract dispute or even personal injury. But when we're dealing with your family, this has you know generational consequences. Um, you know how how you yes. handle your divorce. Absolutely. And I find that, and maybe you do too, that people come into the divorce process with a lot of ideas about what's going to happen. What are some of the common myths that you find your clients often um, come to you with? I think common myths are that, um, first of all, fighting is always a good idea. That sort of the, the movie or TV idea, it's an old movie now, but Kramer versus Kramer or uh, War of the Roses. Um, there was a recent Netflix movie about divorce, and they sort of think it's going to be, I need to fight because I need to stand up for my rights and, and that this is really the only option. Also, there's a notion that uh, court is a sort of a computer program that we're going to put in our family's information. We're going to get a, a fair result will come out of it, you know, that the, the right answer will come out of this system. And it's just not so, you know, it's it's going to be like we said about the limitations of the court system, because it's because of those limitations, a lot of times the result in a divorce case will be imperfect at best and not what the family, it won't meet the family's needs as good as it might had it been more customized as we can usually reach with a settled solution or an agreed resolution rather than a trial. So that those are the, those are a couple of the big myths that court's sort of perfect, that it'll be a good answer and that it will be a customized solution for the family. One other major one is that there's this day of judgment, a day of reckoning when the judge will say that one person's bad and the other person's good and the good person's going to get all the money and they're going to get the kids and the other person's going to get nothing or they're going to get punished and they're going to lose. And that's just not the case, as you well know. That's, that's right. Um, I think you talk really well in the book about the fact that, you know, there really are no winners in divorce court. Um, you have varying shades, varying degrees of, you know, winning maybe on some issues. But uh, the other thing you talk about, too, is the fact that, you know, 95% of cases will actually settle uh, before right. we get to a final trial. And it seems like so often there's so much posturing at the beginning of a divorce case, you're really posturing for that trial um, that isn't ever gonna happen. It's That's right, and it, you're right. And it's, um, it's inefficient, it's expensive. And if, if lawyers and clients can get focused on working, exchanging information early, figuring out what their needs and, and wants are and also what's realistic to expect, they would get to the middle and get to an agreement sooner because like, like you just said, the statistic I cite in the book is in the, in the US 95% of cases settle. Well, if we can get to that 95% sooner, we're doing everybody a favor. So, um, and you know, so many cases unfortunately settle on the eve of trial, sometimes during a trial, when that could have been avoided if people had the right mindset. I think mindset plays such a big role. And um, again, I come back to your book. I think that's why your book is great because it really helps kind of you know, frame the mindset in a way that empowers people to make good decisions. What, uh, when you have a client who is beginning the divorce process, um, you mentioned in the book, it's a good idea to start with the end in mind. Like what are your goals for after divorce? 
I find that a lot of times it's hard for people to, you know, begin to imagine what life will be like after divorce, especially if they're not the partner who initiated the divorce. How do you help your clients begin to formulate those post-divorce goals? That's an excellent question. Um, number one, I, I always talk about future casting. You know, think about what's going to, what's life going to look like on the other side. And you're right about the the person who's sort of second to the divorce, the person who's not as far across the emotional bridge of divorce, is that obviously they're at somewhat of a disadvantage because they haven't been thinking about it as long as the other person. Um, I always recommend people talk to a counselor, um, psychologist, counselor, divorce coach to help with these issues, but some people can't afford that. That's okay. Talk to a trusted friend or family member. The, one of the important things is think about what life's like on the other side. Start thinking about real options. For example, where am I going to live? Where am I going to be with the kids? First, where do I want to go? And then what will it take to get there? So can I afford a townhouse in the same school district where we are now? Is it an apartment? Um, what would the drive be like? And instead of wondering about these things, get some answers because fear is based on what we don't know. You know, uncertainty is what drives fear. It's, our, it's human nature to take whatever hole we have and whatever lack of information we have, we fill it with bad stuff. That's just human nature. We're risk avoidant creatures. So if we fill that with information, now we have answers and we ease our fears and now we can make some reasonable calculated decisions about what we're gonna do in the divorce to help us get from A to B because now we've got some data to help us understand where we're going. So we know, okay, my expenses will be X. I have some income and maybe with some support, I'll be able to pay my bills and I'll be able to live in the same school district or whatever the answers may be. But once you have some idea of the end, now you know where to go from A to B to C to being done. If you don't know, it's just people tend to lock down. I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, making decisions from that fear base often leads people into um, you know, really expensive, costly <laughs> decisions that could have been avoided at the beginning. One of the things yes. I find with my clients, you know, when, they, when they're kind of out of touch with life post-divorce is just inviting them to reconnect with things that they're passionate about. So often in a broken marriage, people, you know, forget those things that they used to love to do. Maybe they, you know, have been not doing them to try and appease a spouse. So I think that's a great, great tip. You right. I think that's some great tips. I find that oftentimes when, you know, people are entering the divorce process, they've forgotten those parts of themselves that they, you know, used to have a lot of passion about, things that they cared about. Maybe they gave up doing those things because they're in a broken relationship and they're trying to appease a spouse. And I, I think it's really important for people to connect, you know, and to remember whether it was, you know, maybe art that they used to love or whatever it is, you know, hobbies that they can rediscover and include that in the goal planning. That's, uh, that's excellent advice. So many people lock down, as you know, in divorce and they don't, they just freeze. They don't take care of themselves and they get into a spiral of, um, you know, depression, anxiety, potentially. And you're right, connecting with hobbies, old friends, uh, remembering who they are and taking time for self-care is huge to provide that emotional base to be able to deal with the divorce and move forward. You're absolutely right. That's great advice. 
Well, and I mean, you have a whole chapter on self-care, and I think it's so important. You know, we often see, we know divorce is a period of transition, but, you know, if people go into it with the right mindset, it can really be a period of transformation. And I'm sure, sure you have clients who are, you know, living a great life on the other side of divorce. There are many success stories, and you're right, the attitude is so important. Uh, thinking about it as an opportunity uh, rather than a crisis, it's an opportunity to reshape your life the way that you think it should be shaped. And one thing I've told people is when, when they feel like they're the person, you know, the other person's left the marriage and they're upset. One thing I've said to people is, do you want to be married to somebody who doesn't love you and doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated? I mean, that's thinking about it from that perspective, instead of a sense of loss, instead of, instead it's, well, there's something to gain. I, I deserve better for myself. That's, uh, taking that positive approach like you're suggesting is very healthy and it really helps, especially with children because they're looking to the parents for their guidance and support during that time. And if you are locked down and panicked, the kids read that and they decide they need to be scared too. That's exactly right. Um, and I think so often we forget that our children are sponges and whatever emotions we're feeling in the moment, they're absorbing all of that too. And Absolutely. you know, there's a lot we can do to help make that period of transition easier for children. So I, you know, your, right. your chapter on the parenting plan is really helpful too. Uh, it gives people a lot to think about. Thank you. Uh, um, we talk about, or you talk about the fact that, you know, we know divorce is expensive. Um, you know, in, in my experience, we can easily see divorces surpassing the six figures um, when no. in a highly contested litigated divorce that goes to trial. Uh, and that can be, you know, sticker shock for a lot of families and, and, you know, can help them make other decisions. But there are more than just uh, economic factors at play. So you talk about the other costs of divorce. Can you kind of cover those with us? Sure. I, th I think a lot of people fail to realize that there are, there are more than one cost of divorce because the attorney's fees, obviously, is the one thing everybody thinks about. But um, also important to note is the emotional cost of the divorce. And we've been talking about some of that, both to the people getting divorced and the children and the larger family. So that's an ongoing cost. The uh, other cost is what I call the cash burn rate or expense, increased expenses during the divorce. And it's not just the attorney's fees, it's the expenses around the marriage or the people getting divorced, they buy clothes, they may, maybe somebody moves out somebody buys another car because now they can't share one. Um, they now have two households to take care of or they will, so they're gonna be spending more money and people start, maybe they go out more or they go on a trip or what have you, or perhaps they feel depressed and they're spending money and buying things to sort of fill that emotional hole. So usually as, as you're, I'm sure you're familiar with in your cases, you'll see people's spending will ramp up during a divorce case. That's not unusual and that's, can be a huge factor in burning up community property or marital assets, depending on your state, along the way before you even get to the divorce. And I talk about a case, an extreme one in, in the book, where they were burning thirty, forty thousand $40,000 a month, and, and the money they were fighting over was essentially getting swallowed up by just excess spending in the divorce itself, not just for fees, but for paying all kinds of racking up charges on credit cards, things like that. And so there was really nothing or, or a lot less to fight about by the time we got through a year of trial. So those expenses need to be considered. And then the other big one is 
the drag on somebody's career, profession, job. They're focused on the divorce. They're off their game at work. They're losing ground at work. And if they own a business, their performance in their business may be off. And there are probably many, many subtle ways why how the divorce is impacting them in their career. So there are really four costs to divorce that I talk about in the book. And if people add those together and weigh those in considering how long this will take, how much this will cost in the four ways versus whatever deal they're trying to negotiate or whatever outcome they want, they have a much better assessment about the pros and cons of either of settling versus trial. I think it's so smart to, and really I, I call those the opportunity costs, right? When you're in divorce, everything that has to be on hold, the decisions that you can't make, the time you don't have to commit to the career growth and development, um, various deals that may be coming down the, the, the road. Um, yes. And I think it's so important to weigh that in when we're looking at a settlement, right? So that, that bottom line on the spreadsheet, um, if it's tilted slightly in favor of the other spouse, it, it may be the exact right deal because it gets you on yeah. your way. Exactly. It's the, the one thing I like to tell clients and uh, a collaborative law colleague of mine, Jim Lenahan, said this, I have to give him credit. He said, it's not what's a fair result. It's is the result acceptable? And because fair is a kind of a biased thing. Your fair is different than my fair. And that's sort of our kindergarten idea of fairness. Uh, you're right. A deal that might be a few bucks more than it maybe should be, if we put that in quotes, or maybe we're giving a little more than maybe we think we should. When we're weighing all those costs, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a great deal if you factor in the costs. Exactly. And the other thing that people often don't understand when they're looking at um, the cost of a divorce is if you take it to trial, um, and we talk about the cost of, of you know going through trial, but if you do end up with a winner in trial, you probably are going to also have an appeal, which only elongates the process. Now you're tied up in divorce hell for years, right? Yeah. And nobody, the problem is, unfortunately, there isn't a lot, of, as you said, as you mentioned, there's not a lot of good education out there for clients getting divorced. And a lot of lawyers are, are just not good teachers of their clients. So lawyers know this stuff. They're just not really good at communicating it to their clients. And I really don't think it's intentional. It's just, it's that idea of uh, when, when you have a technical expert, whether they're an engineer, an accountant, a lawyer, we're trained in that technical stuff. We're supposed to be good at that. We're not necessarily trained to be good at communicating it to clients. That's not in law school. As you know, none of that is. So we, we get out of law school and realize, wow, there's all these clients we have to work for. Nobody warned us about that. They just told us about facts and law. Well, a lot of lawyers just don't explain this to people. They don't realize, like you said, you may win at the divorce trial and then your spouse appeals. And like you said, now you've bought yourself another year, maybe $50,000 plus uh, messing around with an appeal. And maybe if the appellate court reverses the trial court, you might go back and retry parts of that divorce case. So you're right, it's not done necessarily. That's a, that's a divorce myth that the case is not done at the trial or, or may not be done at trial. That's exactly right. I know you and I were talking briefly um, a little bit before we started recording about kind of the, the myth of the bulldog attorney that when you're facing divorce, you need to go hire the meanest, uh, baddest lawyer. And, um, you know, share with us a little bit about what you said. I mean, how, how does that really serve clients in the end? The, the bulldog lawyer, the, the myth is, you know, if we watch TV and movies, I've got to get the bulldog. I have to get the toughest guy on the block and I'm going to go to World War III and 
you know, I want to, I want to win, you know, I'm going to crush them. Well, that, that bulldog lawyer, the problem with unleashing the bulldog is they just start biting everybody and you can't get them back on the leash. So in the vast majority of cases, the bulldog is unnecessary and will cause a spiral into what I call the swamp, you know, of, of kind of endless litigation. Uh, that person, that type of lawyer is appropriate for a very specific type of case. Um, there are cases where aggression and, you know, aggressive litigation is likely, is really the only answer. Even then, I think litigation can be done right or wrong. But let's, we'll set that aside for now. The problem with the bulldog is, as we said, they just, all they know how to do is fight. And there's, there's really no end in sight to that. It's not, a, there's no settlement mindset. It's just World War III all the way through. And for the majority of people, that's not the right answer. So I, I think just like there are multiple, one should have multiple tools in the toolbox to approach any problem. Um, I believe that divorce is best solved by the right tool for the job. What if it's a couple people that are getting along fairly well, then mediation, you know, assisted by attorneys or collaborative law, is it's likely the best answer for negotiating a settlement early rather than a lot of court stuff that people just don't need. Uh, that's exactly right. And, you know, the other thing you and I were talking about is the fact that it's not it's not the bulldog attorney's fault, really. That's what they train lawyers to do yeah. in law school. And right. if you look at the marketing that's out there for family law, most of the time it is marketing this really, uh, you know, aggressive bulldog approach. It's just the, right. the problem is, is that this is your family, you know, again, as we come back to and that there are other options. I'd love to kind of explore with you right now what those other options are and how you've seen them serve families um, in the divorce process. Sure. So, um, yeah, by the way, I call that marketing. It's the blue suit crossed arms thing. So. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, we're going to crush your wife or what, you know, <laughs> and, and it's like, it's so, you're right. It's, it's what you see on all the billboards and the websites, the blue suit crowd with the frowns and the crossed arms, you know, yeah. we're going to, we're going to kill your spouse. You know, well, most people don't want that. Like you said, you're still a family after your divorce. You're going to go to football games <laughs> together. You're hopefully going to go to a wedding together. Do you really want to destroy your spouse? And, and maybe in the heat of the moment, people think they do. But as they go through and the, and the stages of grief go by, they don't, and their kids don't want that either. So you're right; it's it's important to have that perspective. But let's so let's let's talk about the um, other methods of resolving the disputes. And um, I'm a big fan of collaborative practice. So I guess I'll start with that, and that is um, basically two lawyers trained in collaborative law, which is sort of a fusion of mediation and traditional negotiation concepts. And um, the it's typically two attorneys usually with a, a supported by a team, typically with divorce coaches who are also trained in collaborative and they're usually counselors or psychologists. Uh, then also uh, typically a financial neutral. So some person trained with a financial background, uh, typically a certified divorce financial analyst, might be a CPA. They gather the financial data from both people and create financial models for the lawyers to use in the negotiation sessions. And collaborative folks meet typically once a month in, in our area and uh, meet and resolve the issues about two hours at a time. So people are fresh, there's an agenda. It's more, much more like a business meeting rather than uh, some kind of argument or war. It's a, a reasoned approach to resolving divorce cases. And I find collaborative very attractive for many people. So and next, I would- 
And I'll, just, sorry, I'll, I'll just chime in here. One of the things, you know, people often think they want to take their case to a judge, but you have to realize when you go in front of a judge, you're really giving over all power and control to the court who's going to make orders. I and mean, these are not suggestions. They're not going to make recommendations. They're going to actually make orders that you have to follow whether you like it or not. And I found yes. that so many of my clients um, choose the collaborative divorce process because they really like the empowerment. They like knowing that they're not giving the decision-making over to a, you know, a third party who's going to yes. hear them for a couple of hours, but they're going to retain that control over the outcome of their case. Yeah, you're right. The uh, client satisfaction is much higher with collaborative or, you know, because they are, you're right, they're in charge of the process and they feel much more agency. Uh, in the court process, they just feel swept along in the sort of the river of this litigation process. And you, you're right, they're putting their fate in the hands of a judge or maybe a guardian ad litem or similar person is you know third party appointed to investigate child issues and make recommendations to the court. So, and, and like you said, the, I, I try to think of it as the judge is looking at your life through basically a drinking straw. You know, like you mentioned before we talked on the show, there are rules of evidence uh, that restrict what can be told to the court. A lot of times the client will say, I just want to tell the judge what a jerk he is and I want to say all this stuff and then he'll understand and then we'll, we'll get the ultimate you know, the good result. And you, you hate to tell the client, I'm sorry, but the rules of evidence restrict what we can say and our time is limited. So they're never going to know the whole story. Yeah. And it's never going to be as custom a solution as you're going to get in a collaborative situation or, you know, mediation, something like in a negotiated process. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I think, I think the ability to come up with really creative solutions because you have not only you know the lawyers um, who are experienced family law, but then you also have the benefit of these other professionals who right. also have, they bring a different perspective to the table, but they, they really help with the problem solving itself in terms of coming up with creative solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And um, also that, you know, as you mentioned, the communication issues like divorce coaches can be tremendously valuable in helping folks communicate with each other with the, between their spouses, with their children, um, and then even understanding the attorney. So sometimes the lawyers say things that fly right over the client's heads. And sometimes the coach says, hey, wait a second, can you say that in English, please? <laughs> and exactly. we, we like to think we're good at that, at communicating that, but sometimes we're not. And it helps understand, helps the clients understand what is going on and deal with their own feelings in, in the process. So uh, yeah, I think, I think collaborative is tremendously valuable. I started doing collab in 2007 or eight and uh, it's been, you know, growing in popularity since then. And it, it's nice to see. And I think, like you said, it's um, so many people have been well served by it. And I've had very few cases, I think only two, and all the time I've been doing it, you know, go to court. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I like to, I like to see if we can resolve these cases collaboratively. It's not the right tool for every case, but it's the right tool for a lot of cases. That's exactly right. Um, and I, I do, I want to come back to that, but I want to touch on some of the other methods that people have for sure. resolving disputes. So, you know, sure. we talked about mediation. Um, so, sure. Um, should I, I can go through briefly talk yeah. about mediation. Okay. Go for it. So with mediation, you have a, a neutral third party mediator, typically a divorce lawyer, doesn't have to be, and uh, they're trained in mediation. And, and with the mediation, you have this neutral third party basically making sure everybody plays nice in the sandbox and respects each other 
They set ground rules about how people communicate with each other. The mediator keeps the discussion organized and on track. And typically the sessions are maybe two, three hours. Some mediations can be longer. And um, folks will discuss the issues in their divorce with the mediator and try to sort them out and get resolution. And if they reach an agreement, the mediator prepares what's known as a memorandum of understanding or MOU. They submit that to lawyers. The lawyers prepare the divorce paperwork and get folks divorced. Um, it can be an excellent way to resolve a case, uh, quicker, less expensive. The only caveat I have with mediation is I think folks still need to talk with lawyers to know their rights and responsibilities and what's realistic to ask for in a mediation so they're well prepared for the sessions and they're an informed consumer because of course the mediator can't give legal advice. So that I think kind of opens up the conversation for what you talk in the book about metadata. And that is, and I would love for you to explore that with us because I think people, you know, come into the divorce process with all kinds of ideas. A lot of those ideas are, you know, maybe you get from um, a celebrity divorce that's happening in a different state with different rules. Um, and oh, by the way, they're celebrities, they're not you. Uh, uh, so talk to us a little bit about the meta divorce. Yeah, the meta case is everything that's not the case. So the case is, of course, the facts and the law. And that's the stuff, theoretically, the judge, if you have a trial, is deciding. And the meta case is theoretically, or I guess objectively, what should be the stuff that's deciding your case or driving a settlement. So, you know, how much money somebody has, what are the assets, what's marital or non-marital or community or, or separate property. Uh, what are the facts about the children and that kind of thing? That's so one thinks going into it, or you know, typical a typical client would think going into it. Well, you know, it's all about that. Well, then they, you find out, and, and as experienced divorce lawyers know, so much of this other stuff that surrounds the case drives the outcomes or, or has a major impact on the outcomes. So the meta case is, who are the people involved? Who are the parties? How do they interact with each other? What about the children? How do the parties, mom and dad deal with the kids? Who's the judge if you're in court? What's, what are their prejudices, biases? Uh, what do they think about the situation? Is there a guardian ad litem if there's a custody dispute or someone in a similar role? What do they bring to the table? And uh, how are these people interacting with the outside world? So teachers, counselors, uh, you know, maybe the children have a psychologist they're talking to what's their opinion of one of the parents potentially what are they telling the guardian are the parents behaving well or badly that eventually gets back to the guardian the judge uh, the uh, the other lawyer and so all of these players and also who are the lawyers do you have an aggressive litigator do you got that bulldog on the other side of the case do you have somebody that's good with settling cases um so much of this stuff drives the outcome in ways that are far more substantial than people realize, which is why I take a chapter to address it. Uh, I sort of, you know, I kind of came to this realization over the years that the meta case sometimes is far more significant than the actual case in, in dramatic ways where a case objectively should have been decided one way, but the meta case went the other way and the case was decided in favor or against somebody when it really shouldn't have been but the Medicaid has had that drastic of an impact on the outcome. 
Yeah, I think that is uh, really important to have a conversation. And so if you're if you're in the divorce process, you know, being able to sit down and ask your lawyer, how do all these other factors, you know, shape the outcome in the case? What does this what does this mean? Why right. while we can do an analysis of applying the facts to the or the lot of the facts, um, I think you're exactly right. We have to pay attention to all these other issues that are going on. And that's why when people are going into mediation, it is really important to have good, a good advisor working with you, a good lawyer who can really help you kind of, you know, shape your expectations. I think so right. many people, you know, think that, you know, they're going to get a certain outcome. Um, and in fact, that may not at all be realistic based on, you know, whatever else is going right. on in the case. Yeah. And I think there's this sort of binary thing we have in, in the divorce world where clients are either they're attracted to the bulldog, like we talked about. So, you know, I want an aggressive guy or woman to go in there and tear him up. And that's sort of one side of it. Then there's this other end of the spectrum, which is this complete fear of lawyers where, you know, I, I just want to get a mediator. I don't want, you know, they basically like the title of the book. I just want this done. I don't want to spend much money and I want to stay away from lawyers. Lawyers are bad. Well, I think the truth is, the truth is in the middle. Uh, and as you're suggesting in that case, going into mediation without knowing what you're getting into is going to be a frustrating process where I think you're going to run into walls and not know what A, what to ask for, B, whether you should accept something that your spouse is asking for. You won't know whether it's good or not good because the mediator can't tell you so you're right. I advocate sort of take a middle approach. It's okay to, to want to mediate, but get some attorney's advice who's comfortable with you going to mediate and talk through the options. Talk about the, the child support. Talk about alimony or, or maintenance. Talk about potential division of assets. So you go in armed with information so your mediations are productive. I think that's really good advice. And I, I'm excited to see, frankly, I know in our state, we've got um, a lot more options for lawyers to be able to provide limited scope services. So yep. if somebody didn't want full representation, but they did at least want to go in and get some advice before mediation, that's that's completely um, an option for many lawyers who are offering those services. And yeah, same in, same in Illinois. We now have limited scope representation. So you're right. We can offer a few hours of of talking with clients about about mediation and following them through the process. And we have also kind of assisted mediation is on the rise now where we have two lawyers in the room uh, or maybe shuttling, you know, in and out of the room with the folks so they can get direct advice during mediation. In my opinion, you might as well do collaborative in that case, but <laughs> I know people find some appeal with the assisted process. I'll tell you in Texas, in general, if you have lawyers, the way mediation is done is kind of the the boiler uh, the boiler room pressure cooker, uh, where yeah. you go for one day and you're in a in a conference room with your lawyer and the mediator shuttles back and forth. But I, it yeah. is always interesting to me how different locales, different areas have different customs, and right. and that brings to point the fact that just because it's always been done that way doesn't mean it has to continue to be done that way and so people yes. you know need to have conversations um and be I, you know, I always want consumers to, to drive the the outcome and to to be informed and empowered so that they can you know ask their lawyer to have a certain kind of divorce well yeah you're right lawyers need to be client-centered and uh, i'm a big fan of jack newton's books the founder of clio a law firm management software called the client-centered law firm. And he points out in the book, and he's 
absolutely right. This is about the clients and we're not taught that in law school, as I mentioned before. And so it's a revelation to some lawyers that's not just the person paying the bill. So this, we wouldn't have a, a career if it wasn't for the clients. And we need to look to what their best interests are and let the client drive the process as you're suggesting. I think another myth that a lot of people have when they're shopping for divorce services is that, you know, when you're hiring a bulldog, you want to make sure that the lawyer isn't in cahoots with the other lawyer um, and that they're not going to, you know, get together and just milk the case. But I think a lot of people, you know, with that understanding, then are really wary of lawyers having good collegial professional relationships with each other. And, you know, I just like to hear from your perspective, um, how do you see a good positive uh, lawyer to lawyer relationship benefiting clients? I think it's crucial uh, or certainly very, very helpful. And uh, if I could give a message to folks out there about what it's really like, I would say, don't worry so much about this sort of lawyers are in the back room throwing you under the bus. Uh, any lawyer who wants to be in business for, you know, have a career in this, needs to be looking out for their client's best interest and if they want to keep their license they have to maintain careful observance of the rules of ethics in each state uh, i've been doing this a long time and i've done other types of litigation before i did uh, family law these backroom deals maybe they're going on in some small town somewhere but I, i'm not familiar with them i've not seen that ever happen i just think too you know my joke is if if somebody was going to do that they'd have to pay the lawyer you know five million dollars or something because they'd have to retire after they lose their license so I, I don't see that stuff happening you want you want your lawyer to be collegial and respectful of everyone else the judge the other lawyer etc because otherwise you're going to just have nothing but static between the attorneys and it becomes this you don't want this big ego battle between the lawyers where the signal to noise ratio, as it were, is all noise and no signal. You need your lawyer to be a good communicator to everyone, to you, the judge, the other attorney. If you hope to settle the case efficiently, the ego has got to be set aside and the lawyer needs to communicate with, communicate with the other attorney clearly. And that's going to be done by showing mutual or having respect and being professional. That's exactly right. I think um, people don't understand the cost savings that are inherent in uh, hiring lawyers who are professional and who abide by their rules of ethics. And, you know, I mean, I, I can think it comes up in something as simple as exchanging information and discovery, and it can just streamline the whole process. So, uh, yes, absolutely. So many games played in discovery, so needless, so much time and money wasted. And that's client money that's wasted. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, as we kind of come to the end of our time together, um, I, Rafe, I would just love to hear, you know, what, what message of hope do you have for people who are facing divorce? You're going to get through it. You will get to the other side. It's going to be okay. You're going to find a better life on the other side. So I, I would say hang in there, have your family and friends support you, stick with your core principles, get a plan, stick to the plan, and, and also demand answers from your attorney. You have a right to get answers from your lawyer and get proper guidance, but you will make it and it will be better. 
I think that's some great advice. Again, the book is I Just Want This Done. We're going to include a link to it in our show notes. Mm -hmm. And also we'll include a link to your TikTok (laughs) channel, which I think you've done a great job uh, representing divorce lawyers on TikTok. So it's been a real pleasure to have this time to talk with you. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you.